we have our Bibles open from the scripture reading earlier, we're ready to go. If not, let's get those back out. This morning's verse or text is just one verse. We're going to still be hopping around a lot in the book of Philippians. I have four points for you. Note takers, here they are up front. I'll try to remember to give them to you again as we go. Point number one, Paul. Point number two, Timothy. Point number three, slave. Point number four, portrait. Point number one, Paul. Our sermon series in the book of Philippians begins exactly where the letter itself begins, with the Apostle Paul. Look at chapter 1, verse 1. We read, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi, with the overseers and deacons. We're going to just start our sermon series in the book of Philippians with the first half of the first verse. Long before Paul was the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. Prior to his conversion to Christianity, Paul led a privileged and impressive life. Not only was he a Roman citizen, but he was also a Pharisee. He was a a religious leader of the Jews, and he was under the tutelage of Gamaliel. Now, see, there's not much of a response from you because that's not very significant, but it's kind of like if you're a physicist and you're training under Einstein, okay, a big deal. Here is Paul's pre-conversion resume from later in the book of Philippians, chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So one day as Paul was living his best Pharisee life on his way to kill and imprison Christians, he had a run-in with Jesus. This is known as the infamous Damascus Road conversion experience. And Shortly after this come-to-Jesus moment, the Lord had this to say of Paul and his future ministry calling. This is from Acts chapter 9. Paul is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. This is pretty powerful stuff. This is Paul's call to be an apostle a special messenger of Jesus Christ and his gospel to the nations. And and what an honor it would be to be this chosen instrument. You're going to the Jews. You're going out to all of the Gentile nations. You're going to be speaking before kings. But that's not all Jesus has to say about Paul's ministry calling. In the very next verse in Acts chapter 9, Jesus summarizes his ministry With these words, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So according to Jesus, Paul's ministry at the core was to be a ministry of suffering. And as we read through this letter to the Philippians, we find indeed a portrait of Paul's suffering. In chapter 1 alone, Paul mentions his imprisonment no less than four times. Look at verse 7. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in my defense and confirmation of the gospel. Look at chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. It has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold. Look at verse 17. 
The former proclaimed Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Paul's in prison, if you haven't picked up on it by now, right? Paul is writing this letter under house arrest, likely in Rome, awaiting trial for what is almost certainly going to be his execution for the treasonous crime of declaring Jesus as Lord. And it is here that we find the heartbeat of the letter. Turn with me to chapter 2. Chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Paul says, even if I am supposed to suffer in this way, it's for my joy and it's for your joy too. If you look, I don't know if it's up on the screen, the image that uh, Morgan Smith made for us, thank you so much, sister, for always doing the images, the graphics for our sermon series. The subtitle is Philippians, the subtitle, Serious Joy. Why serious? Because it's the only kind of joy that can last under the duress of the ministry of suffering that God calls all of his children to in one way or another. Now, the letter to the Philippian church, it covers many themes. You're going to see, and you probably already did as we were reading the four chapters this morning, justification, church unity, missions, perseverance, prayer, humility, But the heartbeat of the epistle is found in joy through suffering. The ministry of suffering in the life of Paul is an instrument that God used to train the church at Philippi for the sake of deep, abiding, and serious joy, which means that the suffering ministry of the Apostle Paul is a tool that God is going to use to teach us how to have deep, abiding, and serious joy, even in the midst of suffering. Now, having said all that, here in verse 1, we see not only the name of Paul, but also the name of Timothy, which leads us to point number 2, Timothy. As you saw, the text says, from Paul and Timothy, which is a little weird. Because as we have read through the letter, what we've seen and what we will see when we read it again is that Paul is not really telling Timothy's story. When Paul talks about suffering, he talks about his chains, his trouble, his sorrow. There are scripture references for all of these. I just went through the book and picked them out. His suffering, his contentment in the face of death. And when Paul finally does end up writing about someone else's suffering, he doesn't talk about Timothy's suffering. He talks about the suffering of Epaphroditus. So why is Timothy mentioned here in the introduction? I I think the answer is found in chapter 2. Turn there with me. Chapter 2, verses 19 through 24. Paul says this, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father, he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. So when you think of Timothy and his ministry, what, what's, what sorts of things come to mind? Most of us, when we think of Timothy, we tend to think of him as Paul's protege, right? And 
That's not wrong. More than that, in verse 22, Paul says that he and Timothy have a father-son relationship, a spiritual father-son relationship. And that's, that's great. That's, that's sweet. That's endearing. It's something that we all long for, older men and younger men alike in the church. We want spiritual sons and we want spiritual fathers. Yes, but this language, the dynamics of this relationship may reinforce the wrong idea that Timothy isn't really a starting guy. You know, he's not on varsity. He's just JV. I'm thinking I'm doing sports stuff correct, right? He's not the A-team TV show mixing metaphors. Stay with me. He's the B-team back to sports, right? When you think about the A-team, right, you think about Paul, Peter, John, James. Those are the guys. And then, you know, when you think about the B-team, maybe you think Titus and Timothy, right? These are the guys who were discipled by the guys, but they're not the guys themselves, But Paul wants the Philippians to know that Timothy is not merely an assistant to the apostle. (laughs) I tried not to smile on that. But you see what I'm saying? That's probably how they might be tempted to view him. And to the contrary, Paul says that there is no one like Timothy. It's true, yes, he is not a capital A apostle. But Paul says he's the real deal. Now, what makes Timothy the real deal? Is it his million-dollar smile? Is it his rhetorical prowess? Is it his administration, uh, his, his administrative savvy, his ability to gather people? That's not what Paul says. Paul says the thing that makes Timothy the real deal is the fact that he loves Jesus and the church more than his own life. Look at verse 21 again. What makes him the real deal? For they all, the untrustworthy ones, they seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In contrast, Timothy only cares about the interests of Jesus Christ. And in verse 22, Paul tells us that he's got the track record to prove it. It's easy to say anybody can do it. All I care about is Christ and his interests, his mission. I'm just about Jesus and his work, his stuff. But do these same people have the track record to prove it? But you know, Philippians, you've seen this, you've experienced it, you've heard testimony. Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. Now Paul is hopeful that he'll make it back to the church at Philippi. He wants to go back, he's hopeful that he'll make it back. But he knows that he might not make it back. But he loves the church there so much that he's going to do the next best thing. If he can't go back, he's going to send Timothy, his beloved son and faithful co-worker in the gospel. And so, from the very first sentence in the letter, Paul is writing in such a way as to set the church up at Philippi to see Timothy as a verified, authentic gospel laborer. Timothy is not just Paul's protege, he is a legitimate pastor and missionary. Now, while we're here, I also want us to just consider something about the nature of Timothy's path in the ministry. In this age of professionalism in the church, I want all the members of our church to understand that Timothy's progression in the ministry should be typical of all aspiring ministers. You start just by being faithful. You show up, right place, right time, right attitude. Willing to serve, willing to help, anything that Jesus needs. You need me to sweep floors, serve in the children's ministry, fold chairs, whatever. Right? You just, you're the kind of person who says, Whatever Jesus needs, I have a sincere desire to serve in that capacity. You don't have to take a spiritual gifts test to find out how you can serve the church. Your pastors will tell you, please, we're dying in the gospel kids ministry. Help us. That was supposed to be funnier than it came off. 
And when you find a man like this, aspiring to be a pastor or a missionary, what the elders in this church are committed to doing is taking such a man under our wing and giving him as many opportunities as he possibly can have to fan into flames those gifts that God has given him. Now, I just, I cannot pass up the opportunity here to talk about Will Stevenson, right? When he showed up, not a whiff of entitlement. He showed up to a dying church to sit under Grant's discipleship and to help out whenever and wherever he could. And then when there was no money to keep him around, he went back to work at Walmart. While he worked at Walmart, he spent every free minute serving this church. Will, like Timothy, was genuinely concerned for the welfare of 6th Avenue. And he gave himself to this body and to Christ without even a hint of self-interest. And Jackie was there supporting him every step of the way. And what happened? Well, Will started as an intern, and then we fanned the flames, and he became a pastoral assistant, and the, 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 the gifts continued to grow, and now he's your pastor. Six years ago, he was Grant's protege. And then he was Sean's protege. But today, by God's grace, he's just Pastor Will. And I hope that you see him that way. And I hope by God's grace to see more young men follow in his path in this church. Point number three, servant or slave. Now, I want you to see something interesting. Go back to verse one. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Paul refers to himself here as a servant. Uh, The Greek word is slave. English translators have chose to render it as servant because with our history of chattel slavery in America, we're a little skittish about that term. But the word is slave. And by the way, the slavery that Paul is referring to in the ancient world was in almost every respect just as evil and wicked as American chattel slavery, with the exception that it wasn't race-based. Now, the word that Paul is using here to refer to himself, it is distinct from what we would think of as a servant. That's why I'm pausing to make sure that we have this clarification. When we think of a servant, we think someone who's like hired to be a maid or a butler. I think about Jeffrey from uh, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, right? He was a servant, but he was also paid, and he had his own life, and he got to leave after work was over, and he wasn't really owned by Uncle Phil and Aunt Vivian, although it felt like it much of the time when he was there serving them in their mansion. This is not what Paul has in mind when he refers to himself as a slave of Christ Jesus. Paul means Jesus owns me, body, and soul. I am not an employee of Jesus Christ. I am the possession of Jesus Christ, which is fitting if Jesus is God. Now that's interesting, but it's not even the most interesting part of what's going on here. You see, if you were to do a quick scan of Paul's letters, maybe you could even do it this afternoon, you'd see that You know, Paul always follows the same introduction for letter writing in the ancient world. There's always an introduction to the epistle. And as Paul introduces himself in his epistles in the New Testament, he always introduces himself with basically the same formula. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. Or Paul, the specially chosen messenger of Christ Jesus. You see it in 1 and 2 Corinthians. Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, right? You can keep going. Now, in some letters, Paul refers to himself as both an apostle and a slave, like in Romans and Titus, but he always begins with apostle. Apostle is always included, but not here. Here alone, in his letter to the Philippians, Paul leaves out apostle and merely refers to himself as a slave. Why? Well, I think it all comes down to a question of emphasis, okay? If you look at the letters that Paul writes where he refers to himself uh, 
excuse me, if you look at Paul's letters, he often emphasizes different aspects of God's character in different pastoring situations. So let me just give you an example. In 2 Corinthians, Paul refers to God as the Father of mercies. And he did that because the Corinthians, at this point in his ministry to them, needed to understand that God was merciful. So he chose to highlight that aspect of God's character, to emphasize it, to put the spotlight on it. Not to the neglect of other aspects, but just to emphasize that one aspect. In Ephesians chapter 1, Paul calls God the Father of glory. In that context, it makes sense why he's emphasizing the glory of the Father. In Romans 15, Paul emphasizes that God is the God of hope. If you know the trajectory of Romans, you know that after talking about what's going to happen with Israel, what's going on with the elect, Paul needs to emphasize hope. God is the God of hope. Paul does this because he's a good pastor. As a good pastor, he knows that sometimes a church needs to focus in on one particular aspect of God's character in a particular situation because it will do our souls good. Right? Just think about it. Some congregations need to hear more about the fact that God is holy, holy, holy because they're living as if holiness doesn't matter. They're living as if you can see the Lord without holiness, even though Scripture says the exact opposite. In contrast, other congregations need to hear more about God's mercy and His free offer of grace because the ministry is just so driven by law. Now, the Apostle Paul is doing this same kind of thing here, except he's not talking about God, he's talking about himself. He is an apostle, and he has authority, but he's also a slave. In this context, he needs to emphasize his humility as a slave of Christ more than his authority as an apostle of Christ. Now listen, there have been times in Paul's ministry where he really needed to emphasize his authority. You just think about the letter to the Galatians, for example, right? There was the the Judaizers and this, this heresy that was undermining justification by grace alone through faith alone. Paul perceived it as nothing less than an attack on the very foundation of the gospel itself. So when he wrote, he was like, hey... I'm not writing like some Joe Blow who just got a Bible college degree on a Saturday afternoon on the internet for 50 bucks. I'm the Apostle Paul, commissioned by Christ. I'm speaking with a kind of authority that you better pay attention to, and if you don't, you're going to be anathema. In that context, he needed to emphasize his authority as an apostle. But not here. Not at Philippi. It seems like the Philippian church happily and easily supports and submits to Paul's authority as an apostle, which makes sense if you know a little bit about the history of the city of Philippi. Let me just tell you a little bit about that. The city of Philippi was conquered by Caesar Augustus in the Roman Empire some 90 years, 90 years before the apostle Paul showed up and started preaching the gospel there. After it was conquered, the Caesar turned it into an outpost for retired military, right? It's a colony of ex-military, and here's the thing about military guys. They get authority. Authority just makes sense to a military man, right? Do you remember the centurion from Luke chapter 7? He asked Jesus to heal his servant, Right? And the centurion, of course, was a person who was in the military for the Roman Empire. So this man, he heard about Jesus. Jesus is going around. He's healing all these people. Right? The news is beginning to spread. And he has a servant. His servant is probably pretty important to him. Allows him to get his job done. It would be like if Luke was sick. Oh no, somebody send help. The newsletter's not going out this week. So he sends to Jesus by way of the Jews and says, hey, can you come help me? Can you come heal this man? But before Jesus could get to him, he had this epiphany. Listen to what it says. It says, 
Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. And by the way, that word Lord there is a recognition of Jesus' authority. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you as if I'm anybody, but say the word and let my servant be healed, for I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. You see, the the military guy gets authority, and the city of Philippi is full of military guys. They have no problem recognizing that Paul is an apostle, but they did struggle with something else. They struggled to see themselves as slaves. They struggled to see themselves with a kind of humility that the gospel demands of every single person who submits to Jesus as Lord. Lowly, humble, undignified, having no status. That would not have been easy for these people. Why? Well, for a bunch of different reasons, the flesh, so on and so forth. But also, most of them would have likely been Roman citizens. Remember, to be a Roman citizen was a big deal in these days. It granted you all kinds of legal and social privileges, and it was the only real path to any kind of power in the empire. And citizenship was next to impossible for any commoner to acquire in the empire. The only real hope for citizenship for the average person was to join the military, serve honorably, and retire. It feels like me with my GI Bill, you know, uh, high school dropout, drug addict, criminal, right? How would I ever get money for college? How would I ever get accepted into college? How would I ever get a loan for a car or a house? Well, the military kind of took care of all of that for me, and I squandered it all. But if you were to, if you were to have retired from the, from the military in Rome... You would have gotten a small pension, a piece of land, and you would have been granted your Roman citizenship. Now remember the context. That church at Philippi is a city for military retirees. The city, and therefore the church, and somewhat as a representation of the city, I don't think every single person in the church would have, obviously they would not have been citizens, Uh, but there would have been a a high density of citizens in that city and probably in that church. You know how we talk about Huntsville being like nothing but engineers as far as the eye can see, right? There's, There's more engineering degrees per capita in Huntsville than almost anywhere else in the country. Well, that's what it would have been like in the Roman Empire for the city of Philippi. More citizens per capita than really anywhere else in the empire outside of perhaps Rome. Now, to make matters worse... For this humility endeavor that these Philippians need to embark upon, to achieve citizenship through military service was to receive a special kind of honor and dignity as a citizen. Whether we're talking about modern day USA or ancient Rome, everyone loves the troops, right? Everyone loves to support the troops. We got to back the boys in blue or green or whatever their color of service may be. So these guys, they weren't just citizens, but citizens who get free food on Veterans Day, right? Citizens who hold even an extra measure of honor in the empire. They earned their citizenship the hard way, which meant that the dignity that they would have felt would have been felt in very high esteem. So, when Jesus comes along and becomes Lord of your life and says, Actually, you're not really a citizen of this country at all. You belong to me. You're a citizen of heaven. And as a citizen in my country, you have to become a slave of all. That would have been a hard pill to swallow. If you stop and think about it, a military guy wouldn't have a problem with humble service per se. Right? We saw that with the centurion, right? 
The centurion recognized that Jesus was of a higher grade of authority than himself. And he was like, boom, this is what we do. I'm going to submit to your higher authority. I'll humble myself. Right? An E4 knows his place in relation to a sergeant major. A, a lieutenant knows his place in relation to a colonel. Yes, sir. Absolutely, sir. And I, I still remember which hand to salute with. Right away, sir. Click your heels and go do it. But what do you do when you're told to serve an inferior? Does a sergeant readily give himself over in the service of a private? Does the commander of the company think of the corporal as being more significant than himself? No. Now with all that in mind, turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Starting in verse 3, Paul says, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What I want us to see here, brothers and sisters, is the utter impossibility of obeying this command without God's help. Do nothing out of selfish ambition? Nothing? No conceit whatsoever? Consider everyone as more significant than myself? And by the way, there's not like an asterisk here that's like, well, unless, at all times and in every way, towards all of your brothers and sisters in Christ, put yourself in the position of a slave. And by the way, you cannot do this in a monkish, white-knuckled, pharisaical, sheer will of force kind of way. You can't just go, ugh, like when I tell my kids to do something that they don't want to do. Ugh, okay, uh, uh. I guess you're more important than me, so I'll come do children's ministry. That's what I do when someone asks me to help them move. I just come back here and I'm like, oh, they are way more significant than me. Let's do this. <laughs> this is impossible. How do you do this? Especially if, according to the standards of this world, you are actually more significant than the other. Socially significant financially significant, educationally significant, legally you're more entitled than have more. How do you do that? I mean, just stop and think about, you don't have to answer me, you don't have to, just look in your own heart. Think about every brother and sister in this room, all of the members of the body of Christ in this room. Do you truly, legitimately, view every single one of them as more significant than yourself? Do you truly see yourself as a slave of every other member of the body of Christ in this church? You know, Paul, one of the things I love about reading him is that as you get to know him, you see that he's a really good pastor. He's not naive. He knows that telling the Philippians to do something that is unnatural to the flesh, that is utterly impossible without grace, he knows that he needs to do something other than just tell them to do it. He knows that they need an example. So what does he do? He points to the gospel. Look at chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Okay, good luck with that. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Okay, I'll try. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Okay, okay. How do I, how do I think this way? He's, he's about to tell me, verse 6. Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, the highest authority, all of the honor, all of the dignity, all of the might, 
Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, that is, to be clung to. But he emptied himself by being... Uh, by taking the form of a servant. And by the way, that's the same word from verse 1, taking the form of a slave. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And do you know who dies on crosses? Slaves. Paul is saying, listen guys, Jesus was God, but he humbled himself by becoming a slave. You need to be like Jesus. But before Paul writes any of this in chapter 2, before he gives them this theology lesson, this pastoral exaltation, he leads from the front in the very first verse of the very first chapter. He says, I'm not asking you to do anything that I won't do myself. I, Paul, am a slave. I am the slave of Christ. He begins his letter not by announcing his authority, but rather by announcing his submission to the authority of Christ. And the logic follows, right? You should be able to kind of figure it out from here. If Paul the apostle, hand-selected apostle of Jesus Christ, can humble himself by making himself a slave to Christ and the church, then so can they, right? If the general can humble himself in this way, then so can everyone else in the army. But that's not the only reason why I think Paul refers to himself as a slave as this letter begins. I think there's one more very significant reason. Again, remember the context. Paul has told us that he is in chains. He is a prisoner. Now, take a moment and put yourself in the shoes. Enter into the mindset of the Philippian Christians. How might you feel if an apostle, not just any apostle, your apostle, the apostle who first brought the gospel to you, the apostle who planted your church, the apostle with whom you have been communicating for the sake of the Great Commission among the nations. How would you feel if your apostle had been captured and was awaiting his likely execution? The Philippians, they had an up-close and personal view of Paul's first imprisonment. Do you guys remember that? Paul's first imprisonment happened in their city. You can read about it in Acts 16, but I'll just give you a summary here. So the story is incredible. Paul, along with Silas, he shows up to Macedonia. He goes to the city of Philippi. He starts preaching the gospel. By God's grace, his ministry immediately bears fruit. He goes where he hears some some Jews might be. He meets this woman, Lydia. She gets saved. Others get saved. Praise God. Fast forward. There's a demon-possessed slave girl who is following Paul around the city of Philippi, sort of like a thorn in his flesh, which is not an allusion to where Paul says something of this, but like a, like a pebble in his shoe almost, right? Just following him around, distracting him, bothering him, and then Paul sort of, in a moment, just snaps and is like, enough is enough. Cast the demon out of this woman. Cast the demon out, which is a problem for business. She was a fortune teller. Her owners made a lot of money from her fortune telling. So now that this little witch slave fortune telling girl can't do her job, the owners haul Paul before the city council, the magistrates of the city. This is what they say. These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate, listen, for customs that are not lawful for us, as Romans. In a patriotic city like Philippi? Oh, that was all they needed to hear. Oh, they're telling us we can't do what Romans are supposed to do? Let's get them. So they do. The city officials strip Paul and Silas naked. They beat them half to death with rods. They lock them up in the strongest part of the jail. The rest of the story gets even better. As Paul and Silas 
are in stocks in the prison. They are singing hymns, and in the middle of the night, God breaks open their stocks, their chains, and their cell doors. The jailer freaks out. He's asleep on the job, shouldn't be. He wakes up, finds all the doors busted open. He goes, oh no, pulls out a sword to go kill himself, which he would have had to do for honorific reasons. Paul stops him. Paul stops him. He says, don't do this. The guy says, okay, I won't. (laughs) Paul says, well, hey, since I saved your life, let me preach the gospel to you. The jailer gets saved. They go to the jailer's house. Paul preaches the gospel to the jailer's household. They all believe. They all get baptized. They hold the big feast. I mean, just think about it. Imagine someone at Morgan County Jail. There's a miraculous breakout. And then one of the jailers, the head jailer, gets saved and he invites one of the prisoners to his house to have a big feast with his family to celebrate all of their salvation. It's incredible. Then the magistrates of the city decide to let Paul go. The story wasn't done there. This led to a whole back and forth because Paul's like, hey, listen, um, I appreciate you letting me go, but actually I'm a Roman citizen, and what you've done here is illegal, it's unjust, and I'm not just going to let it slide. The city council members come together, they talk about it, and they go, oh, yeah, we have messed up big time. Okay, let's issue Paul an apology, and they do. They issue Paul a formal apology on behalf of the city, and then they send him on his way. They escort him out of the city. All of this is in the collective memory of the Philippian church. Think about how hopeless they must have felt when the guy who brought the gospel to them was imprisoned. But then think about how hopeful they must have felt when they saw that God had done this series of miracles, incredible, oh, just all these miracles to free Paul and to send him on the way to continue the cause and the call of the Great Commission. All of that's in their mind and they know their apostle is in prison again. And this time it doesn't seem like the hymns are working. The doors are not being busted open. The chains are not being unleashed. Paul is probably going to die. So Paul writes to them. And he says, you don't have to worry. Right? You don't have to worry. Whether I'm in chains or free, whether I'm alive or killed, God is working all things together for the spread of his gospel. Paul wants the Philippians to know that although he is in chains, and listen, this is the the key, although he is in chains, because he is in fact a slave of Christ, he is actually free. The Philippians are like, oh, he's in chains, he's in bondage. Paul says, "Mm, not really. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. First Corinthians chapter seven, verse 22. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant, that word is also slave. He who was called in the Lord as a slave is a freedman of the Lord. Paul wants the Philippians to know that although he is a prisoner of Rome, he is a slave of Christ, which means that he is actually free indeed. So there you have it, Paul, the slave of Christ Jesus, which leads us to point number four. Point number four, portrait. I've tried to show you thus far in this introductory sermon the heartbeat of Philippians. I've tried to show you, I think, how the heartbeat is really found in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, Christ's example of humility in the gospel. Christ, equal with God, became a slave. Paul tells them, you do the same thing. But Paul says that even that is not enough. This, I'm commanding you to do this impossible thing. 
And I want you to see how it is possible if you adopt this mind, the mindset of Christ. And so he, he retells the story of the gospel to them in a way that highlights the humility of Christ so that they can latch onto it and adopt that mindset. But he knows that they need even more than that. What do they need more than that? They need a real life, flesh and blood example of what it looks like to be a slave. In the same way that children, yes, they need to hear the Bible and hear sermons and sing and all that stuff, and they need to hear about God, but they also need to see God pictured to them through their parents, right? Especially dads, our Father in heaven. Dad, you're picturing God to your children. No pressure. In that same way, these Philippians need to be able to see this gospel reality with flesh and bones and sinew. And Paul says in chapter 3, turn back to Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. Paul says, not in, not in pride, not in hubris, he says it in true humility, I am that example. An imperfect example, but an example nonetheless. Verse 17 of chapter 3, brothers, Join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. The ultimate example of humble service, the service of a slave, is Christ Jesus. But the earthly example that Paul, excuse me, that the Philippians have of exactly what that looks like is the Apostle Paul. So with that in mind, I want to spend the rest of our sermon exploring the story of Paul as he tells it to us in these four chapters of Philippians. He shows us, he gives us a portrait of what it looks like to be a slave to Christ in the church. And so we're just going to be flipping. We're going to start at chapter one. I'm just going to give you the bullet points. I'm going to try my best not to riff on any of them because we're going to be exploring all of this more in the days to come. But this is kind of be a, a way for us to explore the letter together. So a servant of Christ is first and foremost a recipient of grace. Look at chapter 1, verse 7. It is right for me to, to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. Of grace. To be a slave of Christ is to receive a gift from God. Number two, a slave of Christ is fervent in prayer, look at chapter 1, verses 3 through 4. The, the, after the introduction, Paul begins with a prayer. He says, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you always in every prayer of mine for you, which means that there's more than one. My prayer for you all, making my prayer with joy. Number three, a slave of Christ is in gospel business. Look at verse 5. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, without getting into a word study, that, that language of partnership, it's the language of business. It means that you're invested with me. You've taken the risk with me. We are co-laborers in this gospel affair. Number four, a slave of Christ loves the church. Look at verse seven. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart for you are, all, you are all partakers with me of grace. How could a slave of Christ not love the church? The church is the body of Christ. If you love your master, the head, then you will also love your master's body. Notice the contrast between Paul's sentiment here in much modern day ministry. A pastor goes to a church, hopefully, to do something so that he gets the attention of a bigger church and a bigger church where he can climb a ministry ladder. Not Paul. He says, I love you. I hold you in my heart. No more riffing. Point number five. A slave of Christ embraces suffering. Right? Look at verse seven again. It's right for me to feel this way about you all. I hold you in my heart. For you all partakers with me of grace, grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. So Paul says that there's something about his imprisonment that is actually a grace, and he embraces it as such. 
Number six, a slave of Christ makes it his aim to defend and promote the gospel. And we saw that there at the end of verse seven. If you were to ask a slave, what is your number one job? What's the one thing that your master has commissioned you to do? If you were to ask Paul as a slave that question, he would say, my number one mission is a gospel mission. My mission is to proclaim the gospel positively and then protect the gospel from anyone who would try to undermine it or do it any harm. He is gospel-centered. Number seven, a slave of Christ wears gospel goggles. Look at verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, right? What do I mean when I say gospel goggles? I mean, if you believe that God really is sovereign and that he really is working all things together for the good of those who love him and he really is building his church and his name really will be made great among the nations, then you have to believe that any ministry setback or apparent ministry setback is somehow, some way being used by God providentially to serve the advance of the gospel. Next, number eight, a slave of Christ views his life as an offering to be poured out for the church. Look at verse 12, right? Wait, no. Sorry, go to chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. The guy who discipled me, when he got hired on at his church, there was nothing but 80 and 90-something-year-old members there. And one of his friends said, don't go there. This is not a good decision. Come, come to work for me at this seminary. Like, that church is not going to come back to life. And you know what he said? He said, listen, if, if God is just calling me to this church to shepherd these elderly saints to the grave, then I will consider it a worthy endeavor, right? That's the sentiment that we he see here in Paul as a slave to Christ. Listen, my life isn't about me. It's not about my retirement. It's not about my nice things. It's not about my prestige. It's about the saints. And if my life is nothing more than an offering poured out on top of them as an offering, then my life has not been wasted. Next, the slave of Christ, verse, sorry, number nine, the slave of Christ is full of gospel joy even in the midst of suffering. Look at chapter 1, verse 18. After talking about all of his suffering Paul said, and, and his joy that he has, he says, likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. That's impossible. And yet here it is. Number 10. The slave of Christ is full of gospel hope. Look at chapter 1, verse 20. Paul says, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. I don't know why I put that <laughs> first reference there, but it, I'm sure it made sense at the time. Number 11, a slave of Christ is full of gospel bravery. Let's hope I got the next reference right. No, I don't know what happened there either. Moving on. Trust me, it was good. Read it for yourselves. Oh, this is actually a quiz. You figure out why I put that there. Yes, mmm, clever. Number 12, the slave of Christ follows the ethical code of Christ. Look at chapter 1, verse 27. Oh, I was in the wrong chapter. That's what happened. Okay, go back with me. Let's go back. In chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, It's my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. That's pretty powerful. All of the odds are against the Apostle Paul. And he says, it's my eager expectation and hope. We would all look at Paul and be like, hey, buddy, you might want to calibrate your expectations. He goes, no, no, no. You need to calibrate your understanding of who God is and what he's doing. And then gospel bravery in verse 20 as well. He says, I know that I won't be ashamed. But with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. This world is hard and dark and scary. And make no mistake, friends, 
we do need courage to be the slaves of Christ. We need to believe from the bottom of our souls all the way to the top of our scalps, we need to believe that our Master and Lord will reign victorious. If we believe that, then we will have a supernatural kind of courage in the face of spiritual opposition. Next, number 12, the slave of Christ follows the ethical code of Christ. Look at 127. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Here's this reality, the truth of the gospel. It's a message. It's information. But it must have a bearing on the way that you live. If it's true, you should live a certain way in light of it. And Paul says, I'm calling you to do that. Next, the slave of Christ is mission focused. Look at chapter 2, verse 21. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. In, in contrast, there's Timothy. The only thing he cares about is the mission. He cannot be deterred. Number 14, the slave of Christ treasures Christ above all else. Look at chapter 3, verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. Indeed, or like for real, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And when he says that, guys, the verses that precede that, he's talking about everything that could possibly be significant to him. His lineage, his history, his namesake, his career, his religious identity, everything about his life that he had worked his whole life to accumulate and build up, everything that was passed down to him from the previous generations. He says all of it is nothing, and Christ is everything. Number 15, a slave of Christ, and I'm going to say this in a little bit of a, show you guys a little bit of my street side. It's going to be a little ratchet. He's down for whatever. A slave of Christ is down for whatever. Look at chapter 3, verse 11. That by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. By any means possible, he'll do whatever it takes to see and savor and participate in the glory of the risen Christ. Number 16, a slave of Christ fights the fight of faith to the end. Look at chapter 3, verse 12. He has endurance. It's easy to say you're down for whatever, and then you get in the mix of whatever, and you're like, whoa, this is harder than I thought it was going to be. Verse 12, not only, it's not that I have already obtained this or I'm already perfect, but I press on to make it my own. Don't let that word press land lightly on your heart. It's not a light word. It's you're running a hundred mile marathon. You're on mile 40. You press on. It's you've been married for two years. Your marriage is really, really hard. All you want to do is quit. You know God says you shouldn't quit. You press on. Your children are rebellious. You think, by God's grace, you've done everything that you can do to raise them up in the discipline and admonition of the Lord, and they are just walking further and further away from the Lord, and you are hopeless, and you are dejected, and you feel like you want to give up every second of every day, but you don't. You press on like a slave of the Lord who controls it all. Next, number 17 a slave of Christ is a citizen of heaven and therefore a foreigner on earth. Look at chapter 3, verse 20. Now, now that you know a little bit about the Roman citizenship aspect of Philippi, let this verse hit you differently. But our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a Savior. We're going to we're going to really spend some good time on that in the coming days. Number 18, a slave of Christ is sober-minded and vigilant. Look at chapter 4, verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Now look at verse 8. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure... 
whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Notice, be reasonable and think about the right things. You have a mission. If you're busy thinking about everything but the mission, you won't do a good job of fulfilling your role to complete the mission. So a slave of Christ has to be singular in his focus. He has to be driven to accomplish one thing to the neglect of everything else. There are bad expressions of that. Michael Jordan, if you saw the Last Dance documentary, all he wanted was to be the best basketball player in the world, and it cost him everything else that should have mattered in his life. That's a wicked expression of this. A righteous expression of this is I count everything as loss for my singular dedication to Christ and his mission, and I am only going to focus on those things. Guys, I got to tell you, and I said I wasn't going to do it, but I'm doing it. I'm preaching. Try to stop me. I love it when I hear Christians who just say, and, and then I read this book, and then I was reading this sermon, and then I listened to this podcast, and I was talking with this member about this thing. I'm like, dude, all you think about is the gospel. That's really good. And it's really convicting. And I need to do that more too. And we just all need to do it together. Next, a slave of Christ is content in all circumstances. Look at chapter 4, verses 11 and 12. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned. You guys see that? Learned? It's not like he got saved and had it all figured out. It was a process. I learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Whatever situation. Oh, you mean like, like without Wi-Fi? I've learned to be content. No cell phone signal. No. A widower. Beaten. Stoned. Shipwrecked. Naked, hungry, cold, imprisoned. He's learned how to be content. Finally, a slave of Christ will one day rise in the glory of the King. And you get that all the way back in chapter 2. We didn't finish reading the, the poem of chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. But the end of the poem reads like this in verse 9. Therefore, after he went through all this, after he became a slave, after he died a shameful death on the cross, therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That's true of Christ, and guess what? If you're in Christ... In a lesser sense, that will be true of you. If you're having a hard time wrapping your mind around this concept of being a slave, being lowly, being humble, being undignified in the sight of the world, you should know it's only temporary. It's only temporary. Your eternity is going to last forever. Forever. I can't even, you can't begin to comprehend how long eternity is going to be. Your life is this much of an eternity. And this is not an accurate measurement. It's less than this. Whatever less than zero is, that's how much your life is in comparison to your eternity. You will be exalted with Christ forever if you can just, by the power of Christ, with the grace of Christ, humble yourself here and now under the authority of Christ. And isn't it right and fitting that you do so in light of who He is? Isn't it right and fitting that you do so in light of who you are? Who are you to be exalted? Who are you to be anything other than a slave? Friend, you're a rebel. All you've ever done is sin against the God who made you and the God who loves you and the God who has called you into a relationship with himself, and you've just been spitting in his face your whole life. You've been living a life that's utterly contemptible before his majesty and holiness. Who are you to be exalted? You're nobody. You're nothing. Unless, unless you recognize your lowly state, unless you're willing to call yourself wretched, debased, sinner, deserving of wrath, if you can do that, if you can enter into that shame and humility, the word humility, by the way, humiliation, if you can enter into that humiliation, what is on the other side of that door is glory. Restoration, mercy, grace, 
and an eternal love. I love the way that Paul does this. He says, I'm a slave of Christ, and he doesn't do it, I'm a slave of a Christ. He's, he's not embarrassed. He's not embarrassed. He rejoices for everyone to see him in this status and position. And if you're here this morning, and if, and if you're a seeker, and you're trying to understand Christianity, I want you to know that this is at the very heart of our faith. The gospel says that we are all slaves. Every single one of us. The question is, who is your master? It's either sin or it's Christ. Now, if you want to continue with sin as your master, I just want to ask you, why? Has your master been kind to you thus far in your life? Has your sin treated you well? Has your sin made you feel loved? Has your sin strengthened you? Has it made your life better in any way? Or has it just constantly chipped away at your peace and joy? In contrast, you have the Apostle Paul who had tasted everything that his master in this world had to offer him. And he said, oh, that sucks. I know I shouldn't say sucks from the pulpit. But that's what he said. It's worthless. He uses a stronger word. And he's happy to talk about his master, Jesus. Why? Because he's a good master. He's a kind, benevolent, loving master. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. So I want to encourage you today to choose which master you will serve. Christ has He's already purchased your freedom. If you're tired of being a slave to sin, if you're tired of serving Satan in this world, you think, how on earth could I possibly get out from under this bondage? Well, you don't have to. Jesus already did that for you. He died on the cross for you 2,000 years ago. His blood paid the ransom for your soul. And now, all you have to do is decide today, right now, I don't want to serve sin. I want to serve Jesus. You don't have to come down to the front. That doesn't have to be an altar call. You don't have to talk to me, although I hope you talk to me. But if you've made that decision today, and if you've trusted in Christ and his offering, then you are free. And he will be your master, and it will be good. Let's pray. Father, you have been so good to us. You've treated us far better than we deserve. And we pray that you'll help us to serve you the way that you deserve to be served and that you'll help us to love your church and to give our lives to serve, to serve the church and to serve the head of the church in every way. We pray this in the name above all names, the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.